All right, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to open it to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 5. And uh, we're going to bite off a chunk today, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 7, verse 2. Um, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Samuel, A King Out of Conflict, and we're going to look at um, how God is going to bring His king out of this conflict in His own way, in His time, until His people are with their king in eternity. And so the title of today's sermon is The Heavy Hand of a Holy God. And the, the thesis I want to put before you is that out of apparent defeat, the heavy hand of a holy God displays His might over all the earth. Uh, out of apparent defeat, the heavy hand of a holy God displays His might over all the earth. Um, I'm going to read the text in its entirety, pray, and then we will get to work. So here now, God's holy and inspired and life-giving word, starting in chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around us to the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what we shall, where we shall send it. Uh, tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off your, you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? 
And after he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And to yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat, uh, reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, which were, uh, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside it which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall we go up, and to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath Jerem, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of kiriath Jerem came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day, from the day that the ark was lodged at kiriath Jerem, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Father, these are a lot of words. This is a lot of story. This is a lot of happenings between your people and the pagan nations of the earth. But Father, we need to know that you are a God who is, the God who acts, the God who is Lord over all creation, not just your people in a particular land, but all the earth. Lord, we ask that your name would be famous even this morning in all the earth, that your hand would be seen as powerful, working salvation in your people. Father, we know that there is great difficulty, uh, both in this text, in the life of your people, in the lives of us, your church. 
So, Father, we need to know that out of what looks like defeat, what, what looks like despair, you are still working because you are good and you are mighty and you are sovereign over all. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would attend the reading and preaching of this word, that you would bind it to our hearts, that you would make us more into the image of your son Jesus today, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Lord, we know that only you can do this. Only your spirit is able. So I ask that you would work today in your own time, in your own way. Lord, we love you. We pray all of this in your holy and powerful name. Amen. A generation before Jesus uh, was born, there was a poet named Virgil, and he wrote an epic poem called the Aeneid. And in the Aeneid, we first hear about the story of the, the Greek army laying siege to the city of Troy. And in this uh, battle, in this conflict, uh, the Greeks uh, were, were fighting and were trying to get in and trying to conquer Troy. And after about a decade of fighting, uh, they apparently gave up. So what they did is they constructed this wooden horse and they left one man behind to say, this is a gift that we are giving you uh, as, a, as a concession that you have defeated us. And they apparently sailed away. This, this is the story of the Trojan horse, which has be, kind of become this, this picture of what looks like apparent defeat turns out to be victory. Because that one Greek soldier that got left behind convinced the Trojans that this was a gift. And the Trojans brought the horse inside. And this, the horse, uh, in the horse was a, a select group of, of combatants. And they opened the doors of Troy. And the Greek army sailed back under the cover of darkness. And they came in and they sacked the city. And so we have this concept in our culture of the Trojan horse, this thing that you, you sneak in somewhere, you, you gain access to some place that was locked out to you, and then from that uh, you, you gain a surprise attack and, and you gain victory. Now, in this story of the Ark narrative in the book of Samuel, uh, God is not being sneaky. But what we do have is we have the picture of what looks like apparent defeat. The Philistines defeating the Israelites in battle and capturing the ark and bringing it into their city, bringing it into the temple of their God. And out of that defeat, we see God's mighty hand work a powerful victory and display his glory over all the earth. So the first thing that I want to, I want to look at in this is the heavy hand of God. And so... When, when we read about that conflict last week between the, the Philistines and the Israelites, the result of this uh, in this story is not that the Philistines were superior. There was a theological battle going on as well. And so the Philistines took the Ark of God that was captured and they set it up in their temple next to their statue, Dagon. Because in their mind, it wasn't that their nation had worked a victory. It wasn't that their generals had worked a victory. It was that their god, Dagon, had worked a victory over the gods of the Israelites, of the Hebrews. And so they took this trophy of victory and they set it up in their temple. Now, this should make all the sense in the world to us. If Kids, if you've ever drawn a picture that you were really proud of, your, your mom and dad put it on the, the, the fridge. If you've ever shot a deer that you were particularly proud of, you mount that head on the wall. You catch a fish that you're proud of, you mount that sucker on the wall. We like to display our trophies, and that is exactly what the Philistines were doing. Dagon, they said, is more powerful than the god of the Israelites. Now, remember... Uh, 
Well, we'll just go on. Um, Dagon, and this was a, this was a common thing in their in their in their framework because we can go back even to Judges sixteen with the Samson narrative, and, and when Samson was defeated, we see this pattern of the Philistines praising Dagon as the one who brought victory over the Hebrew judge, and so they were used to uh, praising Dagon. He was the god of wheat. Um, something in that name Dagon is associated with the Semitic word for wheat. And so this is the God who gives them life, gives them food, gives them fertility, and gives them victory. And so they set him up as a trophy uh, over the conquered God, Yahweh. Now I'm going to pause there. I'm going to ask the kids a question. Kids, what are some funny stories that you like? Do you like any funny books, funny stories, funny shows? What is something funny that you like to read or listen to or watch? Yes, Piper. Calvin and Hobbes, a girl after my own heart. What about you, Elsie? The wonky donkey? Okay, very cool. Leo, I don't know what that is. Calvin and Hobbes? Oh, of course you do. Yeah, Calvin? Calvin and Hobbes. All right, and Margaret? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. What about you, Graham? You guys have excellent taste in comic strips. I'm here for it. Um, anybody like a Pearls Before Swine? What about you, Grant, or Aaron? Wow, okay. You guys like Legos and Calvin and Hobbes. It is very uniform. All right, and so when you read these funny things or see these funny things in Calvin and Hobbes, what do you do? How do you respond? You laugh. When you read something funny, you laugh. Guess what? Sometimes the Bible's funny and you should read it and laugh. Because what we see here in this narrative is that even though the Philistines think that they won, they think that they had conquered Yahweh. Remember, they were so afraid of the gods of the Hebrews that they had heard about what they happened in Egypt. They heard about how the gods of the Hebrews overthrew the gods of the Egyptians. So they set Yahweh up or they set the ark up in the temple of Dagon and they're, they're gloating in their victory. But look what happens. The next morning, Morning, the victorious God is bowed down his face in the dirt, lying prostrate before Yahweh. And it's not only one time they take Dagon, they set him back in his place because to the Philistines, the temple or the, uh, the statue of Dagon is actually Dagon himself. And so they take Dagon, just like they took the ark, and they set Dagon back in his place. And the next day, what happens again? He falls down again, but this time he's got no head and no hands. It is okay to read this and laugh. Because remember, the Israelites, at the, at the time of the writing, this would have been most likely during the time of the divided kingdom when they were going into exile. So these were people that needed to be reminded that even out of apparent defeat, God is still working, and the God of the Israelites is the God over all the nations and all the gods of the nations. And so we see here the author of Samuel painting this picture that Yahweh is victorious over the pagan gods of the pagan nations. Remember, this isn't just the bare facts of history. This is Yahweh's theological history of how he's loved and led and cared for and, 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 and uh, guarded his people throughout the ages. So even in the face of apparent defeat, the Israelites can and should laugh because Yahweh is greater than the gods of the nations. And so we see here that 
Yahweh does what Yahweh does, but Dagon is a God who is actually dependent on his people. He, is, they, he needs his people to set him up and put him back in his place. And so not only is he dependent, but he's defaced, deheaded, and completely impotent before the living supreme God of the earth. And so we see that Yahweh is uh, glorious and we see that he is supreme and that his heavy hand is going to then afflict. It's not just that he's going to knock Dagon over. It's that he's going to afflict the people in the region because he is indeed the king. You look in verses uh, 6 through 12, after Dagon had fallen down and was defaced and set back up, we see that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Um, the, the Hebrew text doesn't have it, but the, the Greek text and the Septuagint does. Um, it talks about the mice that are running around, and scholars think that, that there's probably something like the bubonic plague going on here. Um, the people are getting these swelling tumors in their bodies. There's mice running around. And so God is afflicting them with this the same way that he afflicted the Egyptians when God's people were in captivity in Egypt. Think, remember, in the, in the story of the Exodus, God takes... Um, Yahweh takes the Egyptian gods and afflicts the people with the very things that those gods were supposed to be over to display his might and his glory over the pagans. And he is doing the same thing here. Everywhere that the ark goes, he is afflicting them with disease because he is the God who made them. And even though they don't believe in him, he is still the one who has authority over them. So the people go to Ekron. Same thing, tumors and fear. They go to Gath, same thing, tumors and fear. The hand of the Lord was heavy wherever the ark went. Now, this is a really important theological point for us. Our God is infinite and eternal and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is not bound by time, space, region, or culture. You see, God, the ark has moved everywhere, and he is still working his powerful might. The whole earth is his footstool. What we said in the call to worship, he made everything. The Lord made the heavens and the earth. So anywhere the ark is going to go, God is going to display his power and his glory. He is the one who made the nation, so he is Lord over the nations. We, we said in the, in the call to worship, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Now, note what we read earlier and what I just reread. The peoples. God is not just the judge of his people, but all the peoples. And so Yahweh is Lord over not just us, but all creation. And he is showing his lordship. He is showing himself to be a judge over the peoples by afflicting the Philistines with these tumors. And so what we see happening here in God's heavy hand afflicting the Philistines is that while the Israelites presumed that God would show up and they would just automatically get victory over the Philistines in chapter 4, the Philistines wrongly presumed that they could contain God, that they could contain Yahweh, that they could defeat Yahweh. And so God, out of this apparent defeat, is afflicting them with his heavy hand, showing his lordship and his might over the world. Now, the implication that we have here 
on the one hand, there's an implication that we should uh, laugh in the face, often in, in the face of of suffering. Not that not that suffering in itself is something that's funny, but we should know that our God is sovereign, and that even when there's difficulty, um, there's reason to trust in God because He displays His mighty hand over all the earth. But more importantly than that, the implication that we have to wrestle with is the idols of our hands, the idols that we would create are as powerless as God is powerful. And so when we, when we read this story, we obviously think we're more sophisticated than the Philistines. We don't have idols made of clay and wood and ivory and crystals in our house. We don't, we don't have a, a golden calf that we literally fashion with melted-down jewelry from, that we've plundered from the Egyptians. Um, but we are more subtle in our idolatry than that. Um, John Calvin talks about the human heart being a perpetual forge of idols. And, and what that looks like in our lives is when we take created things, we take good things that God has gifted us with, created things, money, relationships, other people, um, food, um, other sources of pleasure, sex. When we take those things and we look to those things and we say, that's going to be the thing that deals with my spiritual problem. We commit idolatry when we, look at, when we look to created things, material things, to rectify a spiritual problem. So, let me, let me illustrate it like this. Because of our sin, uh, we often uh, feel powerless. We feel defeated. We feel out of control. And so, sometimes we think, if I just get the right job... If I get the right career and make the right amount of money and have the right amount of money in my bank account, the world will be okay. So my spiritual problem of lacking power, um, being separated from God, I can rectify that by having the right kind of job. Or we think about it like this. Sin has a way of isolating us. Right? Sin turns you in on yourself. You get isolated. You, you get alone. And so sometimes in our sin, we just feel this crushing weight of loneliness. And we think, if, oh, if, I, could just, oh, if I could just get that, that right relationship, if I just get that one guy or that one girl to love me the way I think I should be loved, if I get that one bit of intimacy that I'm craving, the world will be okay. But when we look to created things, material things, to rectify spiritual problems, we are always going to be left wanting. It is never going to be enough. And so if you look to a career to be the thing that saves you, you're going you're gonna to sell yourself out for that career. You're going to become a slave to that career, and you'll become an intolerable person that nobody will want to spend time with. Or if you look to that, 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 that significant other, that boyfriend, that girlfriend, that husband, that wife, to be the thing that, that cures your anxiety or cures your loneliness or, or deals with the, the, the darkness of your soul, that person will be crushed by the weight of your expectation. They won't save you, and you'll ruin that relationship. Material things, created things, will never be able to rectify spiritual problems. When we look at our sin and our suffering, only a holy God can deal with that. Only where justice and mercy meet at the cross can deal with our sin. Spiritual problems need a spiritual solution, and that's what we find in Christ. And so the idols of our hands, created things, material things, they're good. They can be enjoyed. 
They can be delighted in. Delight in your job. Work heartily unto the Lord. Delight in your boyfriend or girlfriend. Delight more in your spouse. Delight in your investments in your, in your bank account. Use that for God's glory. But understand that created things should point beyond themselves to a creator. Enjoy created things, but don't worship them. Worship the living God, the true God who made you and who calls you to himself. Enjoyment comes from created things, but salvation belongs to the Lord. And so we have to look to our creator, but not just our creator, our redeemer, and find salvation in him. And so when we look to this God, when we look to this God whose hand is heavy, who's displaying his might over all the earth, we have to recognize that this God is holy. And other than. This is not a God that we can approach however we want to. This is not a God that we can control. To, to quote Mr. Beaver, safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So let's look at how to approach this holy God. Um, when the Philistines get fed up with all the tumors and the mice in their city, they realize that they have to get the ark out of here. They have to get this visible physical representation of Yahweh. they got to get him out of the city. And so they devised this plan. We're going to return it. But they understand that they cannot return it empty-handed. It's very interesting. They say we have to return it with a guilt offering. So these are pagans. They have their wonderful polytheistic religion. They've got Dagon. They've got Baalzebub. They've got Ashtaroth. They've got all kinds of gods. But yet they understand that they need to return the ark of the Lord of God, the God of Israel, with a guilt offering. This is the same language that's all over Leviticus, the same offering language that God gives his own people. So there's a sense in which the Philistines are acknowledging the holiness of God, that he needs to be dealt with an offering. So even if they're not exclusively Yahwists, they're at least acknowledging that Yahweh is worthy of worshiping and offering a guilt offering. And so they're acknowledging his holiness and power. And in this really, it's probably not as odd to them as it is to us. They make golden tumors and golden mice and say, yep, we're going we're gonna to take these symbols of our affliction. We're going to take these symbols of our affliction and make them with pretty things. Uh, we're going to make ugly things with pretty materials, and we're going to send that back to God, acknowledging his worthiness, that he's the one. We're going to give him gifts of gold, but acknowledging that he's the one that's afflicting us with the tumors and the mice. And so they're sending this back uh, to God to acknowledge uh, the fact that his heavy hand brought these things. And what they're doing, what is happening in the text here, is that there's this continual play on the on the word heavy and honor. God is heavy in his hand against them. And so they want to show God the heaviness, the honor, that Greek word kavod. They want to give that back to him. They're afraid of, of God making them light, and they want to make him heavy. So, kids, I'm going to pause again. I'm going to ask you one more question. What's something that you have that is valuable? Yeah, Anna. Your American Girl dolls? That's very valuable. Yeah, what about you, Calvin? Your Legos? Of course you do. Uh, Amelia? Your wallet. Oh, very cool. What else do we have that's valuable? Graham? Oh, you dug up some gems in your backyard? Very cool. What about you, Eli? Your coin collection. Now, kids, with these valuable things you have, your Legos, your wallet, your coin collection, your gems, your American Girl dolls, um, where, do they, where do they live? Where do they hang out? Do they hang out with all your other stuff? 
so that your siblings can get into it. No, no, you have like a special place for that valuable stuff, right? You want to set it off to the side. You want to keep it safe and protected. That's the same thing that the Philistines are going to do here with the ark and with these tumors. They're going to take a new cart that nobody's ever been on. They're going to take two milk cows that nobody's ever yoked before. And they're going to have this special thing, this special thing to send the ark back to God. And so they want to give glory where glory is due. They want to make heavy God's glory because God's hand has been heavy against them. They do not want to be made light of like the Egyptians made light of God. And so they remember, just like they remembered that God and the gods of the Hebrews uh, defeated the gods of the Egyptians, they remembered that in that, the Egyptians hardened their own heart. They made heavy their own hearts. They resisted uh, the, the power and the might of Yahweh that he was displaying over them as a pagan nation. And that was foolish. The Philistines acknowledged that the Egyptians did the wrong thing. We don't want to be like them. We want to acknowledge the holiness and the worthiness and the heaviness of God. And so they get this special setup together in chapter 6. They get this special uh, uh, they get this special box for their golden tumors and their golden mice. They get these cows that nobody has ever uh, yoked before, and they, and, they, and they send the ark back on uh, the cart. Now, cows that are milk cows don't normally pull carts. And milk cows that have calves want to be with the calves. And so the Philistines have devised this plan that they really want to know that Yahweh is in charge. And so they take these animals that aren't used to doing this kind of work, that would rather be going with their calves, and they send them on their way to see that if God is really in charge, they will go. And true to form, that's exactly what happens. The steps of the cows are purposefully directed by Yahweh. And so they press on, and the Philistines are convinced that Yahweh was indeed afflicting them. And so um, the Philistines watch them go. They watch the cows approach to Beth Shemesh, Beth Shemesh and um, they are satisfied in their plan. And you would think, to some degree in the narrative, that at this point, all would be well. God's ark is returning to God's people with a satisfying uh, guilt offering, with a, with a fancy golden tumor and fancy golden mice. But all is not well in Beth Shemesh. When the cart gets there, the, the harvesters are there harvesting their wheat, and they look up, and there's an initial rejoicing. And the men of Beth Shemesh, they take the offering from the Philistines, and it becomes their own. They take the cart. And they, they hack it up to burn it up for wood. They sacrifice the cows. They have the golden tumors and the golden mice. And they, they worship the Lord at the rock there. This all sounds well and good. What could possibly be wrong with this? But after we hear about this worship, at least they go through the motions of it, we, we read that the Lord struck down 70 of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. What was their, what was their sin? What was their shortcoming? They looked... Upon the ark. Now, you might ask, what's the problem with looking upon the ark? Weren't all the people looking at it when they was out to battle? Weren't the Philistines looking at it? What could possibly wrong be wrong with looking at the ark? The Hebrew construction here and the way that it's written has the implication that they looked inside, that they peered inside, that they removed the mercy seat and they looked inside. And if you recall, what was in the Ark was the, the Ark of the Covenant, or in the Ark of the Covenant was the two tablets that God uh, 
revealed himself to his people at Sinai. And if you remember, when God revealed himself to his people at Sinai, a cloud had descended on the mountain, and there was thunder, and there was lightning, and and they heard the voice, Don't come near, lest you die. And so, in God's holy and mighty and majestic revelation on that mountain, and he inscribed with his own hand the laws of the Ten Commandments, and placed it in the Ark of the Covenant, that's what the people looked upon. So there is a sense in which they approached Yahweh with such a presumption. I would argue almost the same presumption that they had on the battlefield with the Philistines, and they assumed that they could just approach this God however they wanted to. And so what we see here at the end of chapter 6 is that whereas the Philistines acknowledged the holiness and the majesty, and the might, and the power of God, and returned the ark with a guilt offering. God's own people looked upon the ark, and he struck down 70 of them, because the implication is that they went through the motions of worship, but they clearly worshipped wrongly. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living and holy God. And so they ask the question, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And if we're reading this, we have to ask ourselves the same question. Who can stand? How can we stand? What does it look like to honor and respect Yahweh above all things? Um, and, and I think there's a couple. One, Peter gives us a, in First Peter, um, gives us a picture, I think, where he says, humble yourself before the Lord, um, that at the right time he might exalt you. And so part of what I think we need to learn how to do progressively over our lives is to continually and consistently humble ourselves before the Lord. If you think about the the, the very first sin in the garden, um, God told Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit but they presumed upon themselves that they could do it because they saw the fruit and it looked good to the eye, it was pleasing, and they took it and they ate it. And so there was this insistence that I can just do what I want to do when I want to do it because it looks good to me. And brothers and sisters, that same posture is what we are born with. We are conceived with this posture of I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, regardless of what anybody says. Parents, we of all people know that uh, quite intimately. We don't have to teach our kids to say mine. We don't have to teach our kids to say, no, I'm not going to do that. We don't have to teach our kids to run away when we ask them to stay at the dinner table. We do that by nature as sinners. And so there is a practice that we have to have as Christians of humbling ourselves, saying, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. We have to practice with the apostle, with John the Baptist saying, he must increase, but I must decrease. And part of what you're doing that right now, there's a discipline of sitting under the preached word every week. There's a discipline of setting one day aside and coming to church and gathering with the saints and singing songs and listening to some guy talk for a long time about this old ancient book. And I read a lot of the Bible this morning and you sat through that. That process of sitting under that, that's humbling yourself, acknowledging that this is what God instructs us to do and made us for. But it's not just coming to church. There's a process of, of, of submitting to, to the body of Christ. 
We're going to ordain um, deacons in a few months. We're going to we're going to train them. And part of the vows means um, the deacons are going to have to submit to each other as brethren. We as elders have to take vows where we submit to one another. There are no such things as rogue uh, lone ranger pastors in the PCA. We have to submit to one another. And so there's this practice of submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ in the body of Christ. Because if we're honest, we don't want to do that. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. I don't want to, I, I don't want to by nature just go take somebody else a meal, you know, tonight. That's, that's inconveniencing me. But God in his kindness calls us into a body and says, you need to love one another and serve one another. And when we do that, we are practicing this humility. But another thing too, we think about it in our own worship, or we'll just think about this, our own theology. One of the reasons why we said the Westminster Shorter Catechism questions four and five today is that our view of God reflects our, our, our posture towards him. And we err when we conceive of God as a, an indulgent sky grandpa that winks at our sin and says, it's okay, just try better next time. But we also err when we think of God as a stringent, uh, vindictive, angry, mean, vengeful God who doesn't want anybody to have any fun all the time. And so part of humbling ourselves before the living God is to have a right view of him by looking at what his word says about him and believing it. That God is both infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his holiness, in his justice. He demands per- perfect justice but at the same time, goodness and truth and in mercy and in grace, he sent Christ to come save us from our sins so that in Christ, that perfect love and perfect justice is met on the cross. And so when we consider Yahweh, we have to give deference to what his word says and submit to it. But we know that we so regularly and so often don't. That's why every week we have to come back and and come and rehearse the gospel and corporately confess our sin together. That's why after we corporately confess our sin, we take time to silently and particularly acknowledge how we've sinned against God and each other. Because that is something we are so prone to do. And so when, when we think about that, how can we keep coming back week after week, day after day, confessing the same sins over and over again? Won't God get tired of forgiving us? Won't God just give us over to our sin and say, you know what? You're clearly not worth it. You're clearly not part of my people. You're clearly a waste of my time. No, because out of apparent defeat, the mighty hand of a holy God surely works victory. Because let's be honest. We probably feel like a stranger in the house a lot of times when we come to church. We probably feel like in our sin, I don't belong here. I'm not one of God's people. But look, when Yahweh came, he was to be honored by all the nations and not just Israel. I want you to hear this from the prophet Jeremiah chapter 3. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declare the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called 
the throne of the Lord and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. God in his kindness sent his son Jesus. And in the way of Jesus, he does what? He sets his face like flint towards Jerusalem. And he walks there to the place where they're not going to remember the Ark of the Covenant anymore. And he goes, and he goes to the cross, which was that symbol of pagan oppression. That, that image of pagan defeat and mockery and death and destruction. And Jesus goes there and suffers under the heavy hand of a holy God. All of God's wrath, all of the righteous anger of God was poured heavy on Christ. And Christ bore in his body our sins. He bore in his body our shame. He bore in his body the curse of the law that we by by nature so easily break. And when he bore that for you and for me, we might be forgiven. And that thing on which he died, when it looked like the Son of God, this great prophet, the Son of God himself came to earth, when it looked like he was defeated and dead and and continued under the power of death for three days, the mighty hand of God, outstretched arm, raised him to life so that we might look to him in faith and we might walk in the newness of life. The one who bore the heavy load of our sin and shame says to us, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Our great God and our great King in Christ came to work this mighty salvation for such a people that did not want Him, that did not know Him, that rejected Him, but in His grace and His kindness, He called us to Himself. And He qualified us to come to Himself by His own blood, by His own body, by giving us His righteousness. Brothers and sisters, when you are in the midst of despair and struggling with a broken body and a sinful heart and a rebellious inclination, know that out of whatever looks like apparent defeat in your life, the mighty hand of a holy God displays His glory in you and through you because of what Christ did. Amen? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, You are full of grace and truth. And when we hear of your Son, when we look upon the face of your Son, we see you in fullness of grace and truth. But Father, we know that we see with veiled faces now. We know that we see not as we yet will when you come back in all your glory. So Father, we pray that you would reorient our hearts, reorient our minds, loosen our hands from gripping on to to created things, that we would look to you, our Creator and Redeemer, who sent your own Son, Jesus, to deliver us from sin and death, to give us a greater spiritual exodus um, from the the hardening power of sin and death um, than your people experienced in Egypt. Lord Jesus, we love you. We ask that you would do this and that you would come quickly and make all things new so that you indeed would make all the earth your footstool once again, and that there would be no more death and dying and sickness and pain, but there would just be glory in all the earth. 
We love you, Jesus, and we pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen.